Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Claire Clark, one of the hosts of the channel, and today we're talking to Steph Schuster, an assistant professor of sociology at Michigan State University, and also the author of Trans Medicine, the Emergence and Practice of Treating Gender, which is just out, fresh off the presses from NYU Press. Steph, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I wonder if you could begin our interview by telling us just a, a little bit about yourself. So where'd you go to school? Um, who mentored you along the way? Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to the University of Iowa. Um, I began in 2007 um, in the Department of Sociology. And well, when I first started, I thought I was going to be an organizational sociologist who focused more on um, how social change happens within organizations. And somewhere along the way, I really just started getting into thinking about medicine and gender and all of the complicated, messy ways uh, that those two areas come together. Um, as far as mentors, yeah, I I, uh, I think from my time at Iowa, uh, Mike Souter was pretty influential in my thinking. Um, he is a sociologist. And, you know, at the time, back in 2007 in sociology, uh, picking a dissertation topic that had anything to do with trans people or, or trans studies in general was just seen as kind of this weird offbeat topic. Uh, What I really valued about Mike was that he was open to thinking with me through how the work I was interested in doing in trans medicine is reflecting back into broader conversations in sociology, so. And so trans medicine, um, correct me if I'm wrong here, it was your dissertation, correct? So can, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book? Maybe how it's changed since um, you did your dissertation research? 
it is it has changed quite significantly, Claire. Um, <laughs> but but maybe, maybe that happens a lot, right? Um, so I actually began my dissertation research invested in um, interviewing trans people, um, going into a, a Midwestern city, and I think I interviewed about 40 people um, about their everyday lives, their experiences, their communities. And right at the end, I had a question about, um, tell me what it's like to, you know, go through different gender segregated spaces. So sometimes people talked about healthcare, sometimes they didn't. Um, But what I really noticed as I left that city to go back to Iowa to start writing up the results is that I was, um, I was, I was exhausted and, I think there's something real and maybe another book out there somewhere uh, to be written one day about the secondary trauma that qualitative researchers um, might experience being deeply immersed in other people's trauma. Um, So when I got back to Iowa City, I didn't know how to tell those stories. And I wanted to make sure that I could do justice to the, the complexities of the trans people that I spoke with. Um, but then I had, you know, a dissertation to write. So meanwhile, I had already for a couple of years been doing a lot of healthcare advocacy work with uh, medical providers in the Iowa City area. And it was really through that process of, of working with them and thinking with them and, and addressing some of their own concerns about how to work with trans people in ways that felt just um, and equitable that like those conversations really set the stage for what would become the dissertation. Um, so I just started interviewing more providers and then decided to go down to the Kinsey Institute and look in the archives and see, you know, the like kind of the beginning of trans medicine in the fifties and sixties. And from there it started emerging as like this thing that was a dissertation. Um, but yeah, I, I think back to that. Um, I, I will admit I have tried to embargo my dissertation as long as I possibly can. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's just, it's it's messy. Even when I finished up, I, I still wasn't quite ready to tell the story. So uh, I'm grateful I had a postdoc um, and I met a lot of uh, medical anthropologists who brought me into their writing group and helped me just kind of figure out uh, how to write for academic publication, but also how to tell us like a multi-parted story in the form of a book. So I really, you know, the dissertation was a messy, stumbling my way process. And I think that once I was able to, you know, leave Iowa um, and kind of get into a different position, it gave me more headspace to think about what the book might be about and what story I wanted to tell. I'm going to ask a very basic question here, um, but I think it's it's a necessary question for our, our listeners to be able to understand the rest of the conversation. Um, and that is, what is trans medicine? <laughs> oh, okay. So yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. You're right. It's like, yep. Um, so in the book, I'm mostly thinking through medical providers who are not specializing in this thing called trans medicine. So usually it would be family care providers, uh, gynecologists, um, physician assistants, and then also in therapy, like 
therapeutic services, so psychologists, psychiatrists, all of them have experiences where they have other, you know, other areas of their practice. And what usually happens is one day a, a trans person comes to their clinic and says, I identify as trans and want to get started on some kind of physical intervention. So that might be hormone therapy, uh, it might be voice therapy, it might be some kind of surgical intervention. So a lot of these providers, at least the ones that I spoke with um, and that show up in the book, are people who, at the beginning, they don't go into medicine thinking, I want to specialize in this thing called trans medicine. Um, so for them, it's really a process of learning first about trans people <laughs> mm-hmm. and then, and then like what their roles and responsibilities might be in, in offering medical care. So. And can you say a little bit about how it, how trans medicine originated and how it's evolved since then? If you can even call, if you can even call this kind of medical practice, the same thing, I guess. Yeah. Um, so <sighs> Let's see. In the in the book, um, I place the accumulation, like the begin, like the beginning of trans medicine actually is happening in the nineteen, like the early nineteen hundreds. Um, so you have a lot of sexologists during that time, especially those working in Germany, um, who are really interested in understanding new groups of people that we now might identify as gay or lesbian. But at the time, in the early 1900s, there, there wasn't really a clear difference between gender, sexuality, and sex. In fact, I'm not even sure the term gender really was in use until around the 1960s. So I do want to offer that as like, you know, if we really want to mark the beginning of trans medicine, we have to go back to the early 1900s. But why I place it in the 50s and 60s is because that's when there's more public attention on the fact that there are trans people in society, more people hearing those, especially like all, you know, news stories, um, Christine Jorgensen, it's why a lot of medical history start with her story. Um, Her story was not only about offering the public uh, language to understand this new group called at the time transsexuals, um, but it also meant that people who, maybe identified as trans, had a language with which to describe themselves. Um, And they started seeking out medical care to also undergo a physical transition. Um, And so in the 50s and 60s, there's, you know, it's still a very, it's like a handful of providers who are working with trans people. Um, But they start sharing knowledge with each other. They start corresponding and um, asking each other questions and offering recommendations to each other. And so that's that's when like the the body of knowledge begins to accumulate is in the 1950s. So one of the fun things about this book, I don't know if fun is the right word, but it's the one I've chosen to use, um, is the the combination of methods that you use. So starting out, um, as you mentioned, the Kinsey archives, and starting out really using um, some hist- some. Um, archival research methods, um, and then sort of e- the later chapters use different um, different ways to kind of look at this 
topic, including interviews with individual physicians, observations of professional conferences, close readings of clinical guidelines, which is more interesting than it sounds. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the methods that you used and how using this combination of methods um, informed your conclusions? Yeah, um, I knew at the beginning that I wouldn't feel like I could tell the story about how medical providers understand trans people without using multiple methods. Um, And so beginning in the archives, um, you know, so I'm a sociologist um, and one of my mentors is a historian, but I think that um, the way that I approach historical texts might be a little different than classically trained historians. Um, So just like I look at interviews and I think about the patterns that are coming from them, I also approach historical archives that way. So when I went to the Kinsey Institute, I really wanted to get a, a handle on, in the 1950s and 60s, how did medical providers understand their work? Um, how did they understand what their, like, how did they understand um how to make sense of trans people and also what they as medical providers should be doing in clinical encounters. Um, So like that, looking at that history and, you know, just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters between providers. um, And in the Kinsey Institute, it's a great archive. It's the Harry Benjamin collection. Uh, Harry Benjamin was, you know, one of the most well-known endocrinologists working with trans people in the 1950s and 60s. Um, he took meticulous notes and he saved copies of his letters, the responses from other providers. Like you just can see these chains and some some of them unfolding over years as they are, you know, learning about and then refining their knowledge about how to work with trans people. But I think that as a sociologist, I also felt compelled to think carefully about given where trans medicine started like in how providers understand trans people and their work in trans medicine. I wanted to see and hear from providers uh, how they make sense of trans people now. Like what are the similar threads, concerns, dilemmas that are spread out over, you know, like a 60 year time period and what also what's changed. But the interviews were great. And I, and I met a lot of um, just really fantastic providers and providers who, you know, were willing to get on the phone or on Skype um, or whatever video conferencing and, you know, talk with me. Um, But I think that I decided to go and start observing healthcare conferences because I like, I was always a little concerned that people would say your interviews with providers and they were, they were a little bit more um, on the I don't want to say forward thinking. What am I trying to say? Uh, <laughs> the I, I was always concerned that reviewers might ding the work because the interview data leans a little bit more towards uh, affirming stances on trans people. Um, so in healthcare conferences, it's a little different. So, you know, like at just like at any conference, the beginning of 
these workshops, they're, they're scripted, it's scripted material. Um, but it really wasn't a question and answer session that they went off script and had real conversations, you know, and these are providers working with other providers. Um, and it was there that I felt like I was able to get a different kind of handle on the concerns that they have, um, both from the questions that audience members asked and also the ways that they responded, like from the presenter perspective. So I just think that like the project itself could not have come together in the way that it did without, you know, each of these different sources of information. And then, yeah, I'll just say quickly, um, with the, with the standards of care and uh, clinical guidelines, you know, when, when I'm teaching students in like health and medicine classes and I'm like, you can actually study clinical guidelines as artifacts. And they're always like, oh, that sounds so boring. And I'm like, well, they can be <laughs> unless, <laughs> you know, like, uh, unless you think of them as different kinds of objects, like they're objects that tell us a lot of information about assumptions being made by the medical community about what they think are the proper and appropriate steps for treatment. So, yeah. Well, um, we'll talk a little bit about each of these chapters and and each of these kind of um, ways of of looking at trans medicine. Um, So let's start with the historical research. Um, How were, and this is in quotation marks, worthy patients, how were worthy patients created in the 1950s through the 1970s. <laughs> Sorry, I was just yesterday teaching a class um, on uh, eugenics and thinking a lot. Like I've been thinking a lot about this. Um, how were worthy patients? And I and I will come back to that. Like I'll, I'll bracket uh-huh. it for now. Um, okay. okay. <laughs> so <laughs> um, in the 1950s and 60s, uh, you know medical and again just a handful of providers um were finding that more and more trans people were knocking on their doors trying to find out information about how to get access to especially hormones and then as a secondary uh surgery so there weren't many surgeons in the u.s at the time i think there was maybe one or two between the 50s and into the early 60s So as providers were learning about this community, um, they also found that they were, especially Harry Benjamin, was was kind of getting flooded with requests from trans people across the country. Like, please help me. I'm a trans person. I don't know what to do. I I cannot go to my community doctor. Can you please help me? Um, And so as more people started reaching out to, you know, the handful of providers, providers started getting a little concerned um, about if they were making the best decisions because they didn't have a lot of evidence to support uh, the treatment decisions, right? So they started wondering, are there some people who are asking for uh, gender-affirming care who might not actually be trans people? Um, (laughs) So with that question kind of lingering, they, they began creating criteria to assess so-called worthy patients. They wanted to make sure that the trans people that they were offering hormones to were, and this is scare quotes, truly trans, um, meaning that they had no doubt about their identity. Um, 
patients were perceived as more favorable by providers if they were gender conforming. Um, ideally, they would not have children or they were willing to leave their families and start a life somewhere else after transitioning. Uh, people who were middle class were also ideal candidates. So it's all, it's all about ideal candidates, right? And that became the criteria for who was worthy of care from providers. Um, I think there's also, you know, it's, it's important to mention into the 1960s, as therapists were brought into the conversation, um, they started offering their own language, right? So psychologists think about people in different ways than medical providers um, or physicians. So the conversation shifted a little bit to, like they were really trying to suss through why why do trans people exist? Like where where did they come from, right? Like what is the origins of transsexualism as it was referred to? And so psychologists in adding their own language, um, they were, at one time they thought that being trans was a form of schizophrenia because they thought it was a symptom of delusional thinking, right? Like who in their right mind, and this is from their logic, who in their right mind would want to change their gender? Like that's just so out there. There must be something wrong with them, right? Um, So yeah, the 1950s and 60s are this really interesting moment as doctors and, um, you know, like physicians and therapists are trying to sort through who is a trans person. Um, and what they landed on were people who kind of fit within these normative, um, uh, gender expression and also had some access to wealth. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I wondered if you could say a little bit more about how um, this relationship between physicians and mental health professionals um, kind of develops or um, I don't, evolves is not the right word, um, but it, 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 they, they are not, they're not necessarily always working, um, together or working in concert. So um, anyway, I wondered if you could speak to that relationship a little bit. Let's see. So physicians, 1950s, um, they have exclusive authority over trans medicine. And the more they start working with trans people, and the more that the broader medical community starts hearing about it, um, you know, like the American Medical Association, and even their colleagues, if they worked in clinics, they they sort of stigmatized the physicians who were working with trans people because they were concerned that they might also be delusional um, as it was assumed that trans people were. So physicians called upon therapists to help them in making assessments and offering like another step of verification that a trans person was uh, scare quote, truly trans. But in a short amount of time after inviting therapists into this process, like the treatment process, uh, physicians realized that they had abdicated some of their authority to therapists 
um, because therapists were asked to sign off on uh, a trans person's readiness uh, to start hormones. So that led to uh, kind of like a classic legitimacy war between therapists and physicians. Um, Physicians didn't want to give up their power and they didn't think that therapists should have power over, you know, there were some, sometimes therapists would say, um, you know, dear Dr. Benjamin, thank you for referring this patient. Um, I think this patient needs a couple of months of therapy before I'm, I'm willing to say, yes, she's ready to start estrogen. Um, and physicians didn't like that. So you see this, you know, like this conflict uh, erupting between therapists and physicians as they're, you know, tussling over who should have authority in this area. And meanwhile, you know, in the history of medicine, this is an interesting moment because at the same time that that's happening, there's also conflict that's emerging between uh, psychologists and psychiatrists, right? So like their own little internal legitimacy wars. And everyone is trying to figure out, first of all, what is a trans person (laughs) and Mm -hmm. how do we treat trans people and who should be doing that work and who gets the ultimate say? Um, And, and, and I'm not sure that they've really ever quite figured it out. So. No, these questions are still very much alive as your, your book makes clear. Um, Let's transition to talking about the perspective of physicians. So, um, Emergent areas of medicine, things like transgender, confront doctors with a degree of newness and uncertainty. Um, and this is something that folks who, you know, work in medical or health humanities like to say that the humanities can can bring to health professions education. Like we can help, you know, um, help providers learn to to under to navigate ambiguity and um, tolerate uncertainty and things like that. Um, how are medical professionals typically taught to manage and respond to uncertainty in general? And then how has that process um, looked in trans medicine? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in, in medical sociology, um, there's been, it seems like a couple of decades of disagreement about how much or how well Physicians are trained to manage uncertainty, um, but in general, I think the like the the understanding is that most physicians, m- most medical providers, um, are trained in some degree to manage uncertainty, and that could be uncertainty about if you should choose option A over option B for treatment, um, or how to how to diagnose someone properly. Um, so I think the, the key figures that come into play in managing uncertainty is that there are clinical guidelines which offer providers ready-made information about what steps to proceed in any given course of treatment. There's also the diagnostic criteria, um, which helps people assess uh, you know, different symptoms Uh, and also clinical experience. Um, So the more that a provider is in the clinic and working with patients, the more they become attuned to quickly uh, create a a diagnosis and then a course of treatment, right? So all of these Mm -hmm. things, the the documents and also their experience, 
it helps them quell that, that feeling of uncertainty. In trans medicine, it gets, it gets complicated because, you know, again, at least for the providers that I spoke with and observed in healthcare conferences, they don't have a lot of experience working specifically with trans people. Um, so they can look to guidelines. They can look to the diagnostic criteria um, for, you know, if I'm starting a patient on testosterone, how much should I give them? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But when there's any other questions that come up, right, they really start feeling uneasy. Um, so one provider referred to it as uh, she felt like she wanted a handrail to hold on to. And she didn't feel like she had that in trans medicine um, because in some ways, and, and I talk about this in the book, I think maybe in the introduction, um, mm-hmm that some providers see trans people as so different and so unique and so out there, um, not like in a pejorative way, just like so outside the mm-hmm. realm of their medical training that they feel like they don't know what to do, right? And that that's the uncertainty for medical providers is when they get to a place of, you know, in thinking of trans people in this like exceptional way, right? That they don't feel like they can import their usual clinical experience into their work with trans people. So one of the most compelling parts of the book I thought was um, really that you argue against the a kind of um, potential specialization of trans medicine. So you know, one could imagine one possible solution to this dilemma you just described would be like, well, we just need um, a group of hyper-specialized trans experts, right, who um, who know how to move in this space. And then all of the other um, medical providers can just refer the patients to them. You, um, you think this is a bad idea. This would be a bad idea. And I, I wondered if you could say a little bit about why. Yeah, um, I think I think. Partly my reference point is influenced by having lived in a, in a rural area uh, for a small portion of my life and also mostly living in small towns. Mm-hmm. If we create hyper-specialized medical care providers who are specifically trained to only work with trans people, then I think that what will happen is that Trans people who live in metropolitan areas will have access to specialists in anyone who lives in, you know, it's, what is it, like half the country does not live in metropolitan areas, would have an even more difficult time accessing providers. Um, so I, I think that that's one reason. But I think there's also something really compelling about um, when we start specializing medicine based on people's identities, not necessarily their bodies, but their identities, it can silo out and absolve every other medical provider of having to think about and learn how to how to work with trans people. So if a trans person has cancer and they go to an oncologist and the oncologist has been trained to think about, oh, well, you're a trans person, you should go speak to, you know, the trans specialist. Um, like that doesn't make sense, right? So I guess part of my concern is that Maybe when it comes to gender-affirming interventions, sure, it would be nice to have specialized clinics, 
But I, I worry, I think it's like, it's, it's a two-parted worry. One is that for all other healthcare, <laughs> um, that trans people would continue to experience a lot of the barriers to health access. And also for those of, you know, like for folks who live in smaller towns or in rural areas, it would create uh, in- inequities in healthcare access for gender-affirming interventions. So... I wonder if you could also say a little bit more about the way that you define expertise and um, you use a really interesting term to kind of uh, critique it or warn against it, you know, that that expertise can be weaponized. Um, can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I guess that's a bold statement. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... If expertise is based on the idea that people are knowledgeable about what they're doing, that they have the proper training, um, to and, and are authorized to work, you know, whether it's whether it's law or medicine or education or engineering or whatever, that one knows what they're doing and that affords them a certain amount of authority, um, and also power. So if we go back to the idea that a lot of medical providers have a lot of uncertainty because they don't have a lot of experience working with trans people, what I find in my research is that expertise itself as an idea um, becomes weaponized or used in ways to reassert medical providers authority, even if they're not even sure what they're doing, right? So it becomes a classic hierarchical power relationship that I think a lot of providers actually have moved on from, right? The paternalistic doctor knows best. But when when your claim to expertise is based on a shaky foundation, um, what I find is that that, those are the moments where bias uh, starts seeping into the clinical encounter. Um, because they're grasping at anything to help shore up their own concerns about their expertise and lack of knowledge. So, what does team-based care look like in trans medicine? Like, who are the different professionals that might be involved in helping handle, um, a, a, you know, helping take care of a, a, a patient, um, and? Is one of them, you know, in charge? I'm thinking of these, you know, mid-century tussles between who who gets to be in charge of the the, the final decision maker and what goes on in patients' lives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So right now, the way that trans medicine is set up, um, it still implicates uh, both. It's, and I'm just thinking right now about hormone therapy. It still implicates mm-hmm. physicians and therapists. Um, the guidelines have changed. So it used to be that six months of therapy was mandated before a trans person could access hormones. Um, the newest guidelines, I believe the language now is it's recommended, but not required. Um, it, I'm, I'm not like deflecting your question. I'm just kind of talking Mm -hmm. through it for a second. Um, So where that gets complicated is that not all physicians stay up to date on the newest version of guidelines. 
So from their perspective, they might say, you know, if a, if a client comes to them, they might say, okay, great. I'm willing to work with you, but first I need you to go to therapy. Um, so in that way, I think we would assume the authority was with the physician. Um, but therapists also have a lot of power, right? So mm-hmm. um, therapists can can say, I don't think you're ready. I don't think you're ready for this. I need you to do X, Y, or Z before I'm ready to sign off. And then I'll send this letter of recommendation to your physician. But I do think there's something important about, um, you know, a, a lot of the therapists I spoke with, they were resentful of being asked to to engage in that kind of gatekeeping. It it really is at odds with how a lot of therapists are trained to think about what does a client relationship look like. So I think they still have power, but they I think the way that therapists are trained, they try to they try to equalize that power a little bit um, between themselves and their trans clients. So some will say things like. Um, your physician mandated you have six months of therapy. I think that's ridiculous. So if you want to come once a month and just sit in my office, uh, at the end of six months, I'll go ahead and sign off, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Or some will say, I'm not going to recommend anything. I'm just going to say, you know who you are and who am I to try to, you know, tell you if you are or not trans. Um, so yeah, there's like, it's still really messy and it's not like all therapists do one thing or all physicians think another thing, but I, I think underlining, underlying that relationship between physician and therapist, they're still doing a little bit of a tug of war over authority. Um, it sounds a little different now, um, especially as therapists in particular have kind of mobilized around the idea that in modern therapy, their job is not to tell trans people what they should or should not do with their bodies. So, yeah. Could we talk about the, um, I'd like to talk about the clinical guidelines because you argue that they can actually perpetuate healthcare inequities in some ways. And usually we think of clinical guidelines being used to, um, to standardize patient care, um, Tell us a little bit about um, how you read your your reading of, of the clinical guidelines in trans medicine. Yeah. Um, so clinical guidelines exist for a lot of different medical treatments, right? And I think beginning in the 1990s with the evidence-based medicine movement, the shift has been more and more towards scientific evidence should support all of the guidelines. Um, If you look closely at the guidelines in trans medicine, there's a lot of qualifiers. So I'll start there. Um, The evidence Mm -hmm. in trans medicine is, it does not rise to the occasion of like the gold standard of evidence-based medicine. That worries some providers. Um, And I think that trans medicine, like all other areas of medicine, are trying to incorporate the language of evidence-based medicine because it, you know, it does help strengthen uh, recommendations. It, it offers, well, it offers evidence for if treatments work or not. But the problem with using evidence-based medicine language for a guideline, um, it, like in a guideline that people turn to, 
when you open those guidelines and start looking at all of the qualifiers, like all the footnotes, this does not meet the evidence-based standard. This does not meet the evidence, like this recommendation, like all of the recommendations, like none of the recommendations meet the standard. Um, I think it opens up <laughs> the medical community um, to, to, to be taken a task. Like, I mean, look at what's happening right now across the country as legislators are using that against them, right? Um, all of these states are introducing legislation prohibiting providers from working with trans people because of the lack of evidence. So I think there's been a little bit of a misstep there. But in the guidelines themselves, another concern is that like, trans people have many ways of understanding their genders and their gender expression. Like, it's just, you can ask 10 different trans people how they identify how they make sense of their gender and what their goals might be for uh, gender affirming care. And you might get 10 different answers. So a concern that I have, like a, a, a social implication of trying to map a standardized way of thinking about and treating people onto a group of people who really by definition cannot be standardized is bound to create harm against trans people um, and I think where this plays out the most is, or, or not the most, um, where I see this really coming up a lot is when it comes to non-binary people. So, you know, since the 50s and 60s, the medical community has has worked within the idea that a trans person is someone who is assigned as a girl or a boy at birth, and eventually they want to transition to a man or a woman. And when you have non-binary people coming into the clinic saying, yep, I'm a non-binary person and I'd like to be on a little bit of testosterone, it doesn't fit the standard. And so rather than saying, let me think about this with you, it's uh, absolutely not, right? So it's just like some of the old gatekeeping, the inflection of power is starting to play out again in trans medicine as more non-binary people um, are also seeking care. I, we've taken up a lot of your time, but I, I want to ask a, another question before our traditional final question. So um, I am just going to, to take the liberty of doing that. Um, this book in, in my reading is really the, it's one of the first books about trans medicine. Um, and it's, it's certainly the first one to my knowledge that talks about trans medicine in ways that speak to sort of um, broader issues within the practice of medicine more generally or the medical profession. Um, you, the, the book is really a, a conversation starter. So I think it, I think very much in keeping with your reading of the clinical guidelines, this is not the final word on trans medicine. This is, you know, what everyone should think about it. Um, I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about what kinds of conversations do you hope that the publication of this book will open up and what, um, what changes do you hope might follow the publication of this book in the next five to 10 years? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, a lot of my work is thinking about, you know, and, and I, I, I try to do this throughout the book, like given the, particular concerns, uncertainties, challenges 
that these providers face. How does that reflect back onto broader concerns in medicine in general? Um, so I'm thinking right now about some of like the last question I would ask providers um, sounded something like, can you share with me the joys of working in trans medicine and with trans people? Um, because most of the interviews focused on the challenges. <laughs> so mm-hmm. can, can you share with me the joys? Um, those are the moments that, and they were, they were beautiful. They were beautiful moments. Um, you know, some providers would get, would get weepy and because in spite of their uncertainties and their concerns and their own stumbling through and messing up and sometimes making mistakes, I think a lot of them recognized that working with trans people can be a humbling process. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And there's also skills that they're learning in working with trans people that they're learning to bring into their work with all patients, right? So one example, um, right now in healthcare, the the average time of how much a a physician will spend with a a patient is what, like 12 minutes? So a lot of providers would bring up that example and say, I can't, like, this is a group of people who have been harmed by the medical community. I can't possibly build rapport and do an annual in 12 minutes. So my trans patients ask of me to slow down and be more intentional and and really get a sense of who they are. And that's what I want with all of my patients, right? Um, Or others talk about you know, trans people really challenged my assumptions to not make assumptions about my patients. So in having to do that with trans people, I'm also starting to do that work with all of my... So I just think this, like, what trans people teach providers is... And, you know, the providers, they talk about it. It What trans people teach providers is how to be better providers, right? In a system that is set up that is increasingly difficult um, to build you know, rapport and to really get to know your patients. Um, So I guess one hope is that in reading this, I imagine like if there's one provider out in the world who picks up his book (laughs) and at the end of the day is like, (laughs) wow, I want to try that. Like what would it look like if instead of 12 minutes, I scheduled, I don't know, 16 minutes with my patient, like, all my patients, that would be a win for me. Um, (laughs) I also think that um, like the medical curriculum, so this came up, I think, earlier in our conversation um, about specialization. What would it look like in medical curriculum to stop? I mean, even like small things, right? Instead of the one diversity day where provider, Mm -hmm. like young providers are taught about lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, and queer people. (laughs) Uh, Uh What would it look like if they actually interspersed the existence of trans and LGBTQ people across the curriculum, right? Um, Case studies are used frequently to teach students about how to be providers. Why not just happen to have a trans person who's experiencing a heart attack? Or why not have a gay person who has a broken ankle, you know, like interspersing examples mm-hmm. and de- and familiarizing providers um, or residents, I think would also be a really important step to 
breaking some of that um, concern that providers have, right? Like they, they just, some of them get so wrapped up in, I don't want to mess up that in not wanting to mess up with their trans patients, they kind of mess up. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 Um, what else would I want? I mean, I just, I think they're, I think with more trans people who are coming out and they're visible that the medical community is going to have to figure out, um, yeah, how to work with trans people in ways that doesn't always like frequently perpetuate health inequalities. Right. Um, so, yeah. Well, I, I certainly hope so. And you, you make, um, you, anyway, for anybody who, um, is seeking to do that, this is a, um, a must read book. Um, I, I, so we have now come to, it is time for the traditional final question. Um, what, which is, what are you working on next? Is it more, more trans medicine? Is it something different? Yeah. Um, so uh, there's two interlinked projects. Um, you know, the, his, the, the, the archives that I worked in, and even though it makes up half of this book, um, there's still so much material and I, and I allude to it, I think in the book. Um, Mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm just, I remember I started looking at all of the letters where they started, uh, talking about families and children and all of these moral, you know, like you cannot have children, (laughs) like you will never have a normal family. Um, and they also, you know, forced or not, I think that's a question maybe for the ethicists, but a lot of trans people were encouraged to have procedures like hysterectomies. Um, mm-hmm. So I think one project I'm working on right now is to, but I want to be very careful about it. Um, I want to go back to my notes from the archives and think about and develop more fully how the 1950s and 60s in trans medicine is a part of a conversation that I'm not sure has been told yet about um, spillover effects of eugenics. So I think at this point, you know, and these are all in scare quotes, like we know that the feeble-minded campaigns um, also fed into uh, discussions about um you know, like sexually active women and also was linked to the treatment of prisoners and also was linked to people with mental illnesses and people with disabilities and people of color and poor people. Mm -hmm. The group that I don't think has been included, but I see it, I see it in the archives and I want to sit with it more are also trans people. Um, Yeah. So that's like one project. The other is I'm still just really compelled by this idea. I want to kind of shift a little bit away from trans medicine and think about how similar questions of uncertainty and expertise and where gender and medicine meet um, in new technologies in reproductive health. Um, So I just find it really compelling that there's now specialists who can um, work with expecting parents and through technology you know, give them 99% assurances that they can produce a female or male infant. Um, I think it raises a lot of similar ethical dilemmas and also uncertainties. So, yeah. Well, Steph, those, 
both of those projects sound um, fantastic. Um, thank you for coming on the show to talk about trans medicine. And I encourage our listeners to um, get your hands on a copy. Um, appreciate your time and your expertise. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Claire. This has been a joy. So-